Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. On today's episode, I am joined by Professor Mike Kuby from Arizona State University, where he has taught since 1988. Mike's work on transportation, energy, and optimal locations for networks of fueling stations for alternate fuel vehicles has been funded by the NSF, the U.S. Department of Energy, World Bank, U.S. Corps of Engineers, and NASA. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. Uh, nice to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. You've expressed a lifelong interest in energy and the environment. Why have you chosen to focus your research on transportation? Well, transportation is really complex, but as someone who's interested in energy and and the environment, transportation is the most difficult nut to crack when it comes to climate change. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but around 2016, transportation passed electricity generation as the leading source of CO2 emissions. And not only is it now number one in the United States, it's the only energy use sector in which CO2 emissions are still going up. Emissions are going down and have been for a few years in electric power, residential, commercial, and industrial. But they're going up in transportation still. So Mike, why are CO2 emissions related to transportation still going up? Well, if you think about it, to replace fossil fuel with a cleaner form of energy, or replace a dirtier fossil fuel with a, with a cleaner fuel, all of the other energy uses are stationary. So you only have to change it in one place. You change a, a boiler or a furnace in, you know, in one house or one facility. You change one appliance. But for transportation, these energy-using machines are moving all over the place. You have to make a system-wide change to get any one individual or company to change their vehicle type. So you need stations all over the place. So that's one reason. The other reason is that petroleum has incredible energy density and it's very easy to move or handle. It's a liquid at room temperature. It has a lot of energy per unit of mass. It has a lot of energy per unit of volume. So any of the alternatives, CNG, hydrogen, batteries, they're either much heavier or they're much less dense. So, and, and then you've just got this huge network of not just stations, but repair places and, and everything else. They all have to be changed in tandem to move from gasoline power to something else. So if you look at any of the other energy sectors in the United States, you see 20, 30, 40% of the energy coming from electricity or coal or natural gas or renewables. And then you look at transportation and it's 90 some percent from petroleum. And the little bit that is natural gas or electricity, a lot of the electricity is actually used by you know, uh, electric trains. So Mike, we have an existing network of gas stations. Would we want to use those gas stations in their current locations as places to then transition to refueling for alternative fuel vehicles, or do you have something else in mind? That's a great question and a great suggestion, and it is a strategy that's used for these new hydrogen stations. Some of them are located at existing gas stations. You know, those are places that have demonstrated that they can support a gas station. They get enough demand, uh, either from local areas or passing traffic. It's sometimes difficult to negotiate 
an agreement with them. So if you find one chain that is open to adding pumps of a different kind of fuel, then you might look at other other stations in the same chain and do a master agreement between them. But here's the thing. Those are proven locations, but which ones? You know, we're only going to be able to add a few at the very beginning. So let me ask you a question, Ryan. Do you have a favorite gas station? I do. As a matter of fact, I have a local gas station that I use almost exclusively. Okay. And and tell me about its location. Sure. It's relative to where your, your patterns are. I have a unique work situation where I work from home, as does my wife. So we do not need to fuel up for travel around our employment. But we have a gas station about six blocks away that's incredibly convenient. Other than that, we live in otherwise a relatively historic part of Boulder, Colorado, where there are Mm -hmm. many gas stations. So we either go there to refuel just on a regular basis, or if we're driving to Denver, we have to plan on hitting a gas station along the way, but it's not a usual thing. We generally will refuel at this one gas station. Okay, so this is a gas station very close to your house. Now, do you often go from your house, go to the gas station, and go back home without doing anything else just to fill up? No, I'll usually fit it in along with other chores, but I often will select chores in a certain part of town to make it convenient to stop by and get gas when we need it. You're filling up at the closest station to your house that's on your way to other things. Correct. Right. And that's what most Americans do. They typically favor a station that is the closest one to them or one of the closest ones, but it's also on their way. They don't have to make a choice between a station that's on their way or a station that's close to home because for most Americans, no matter which way they're going from their house, there's a station on their way that is close to their house. The danger is in generalizing from this behavior to what will work best with the first handful of alternative fuel stations that you need to put out there. So if you generalize from the gasoline behavior that people use stations closest to their house, therefore we should use a location model that minimize distances from home to station. And yet, as you also said, you don't travel from your home to your station and back. You actually are doing some kind of a multi-stop trip, grocery shopping, or, or you're on your way to somewhere. So the question is, which of these stations to pick and how do you plan it? So like most Americans, Ryan, you, you, you favor a station close to your house, but you don't make a trip, a dedicated trip, a single purpose trip from your house to the station and back. You're combining it with other activities. Now, this current behavior, as I said, is a result of there being so many gasoline stations. So take a wild guess in my area, the Phoenix metropolitan area, about 4 million people or so. How many gas stations would you guess that we have in that region, in that in Maricopa County? I'm going to guess a thousand. That's a very good guess. That is the number that I have that I have read. So yeah, a thousand stations and about 2,400 in the state of Arizona. We currently have one partially open demo hydrogen station uh, at the headquarters of Nikola Motors. It makes uh, tr- starting to make hydrogen battery hybrid trucks, we have about nine CNG stations. So the question is, if we're going to try to locate three more hydrogen stations or a couple more CNG stations, and we want to put them near where people live, 
based on this current behavior of people doing their gasoline refueling, you're only going to be able to locate it near where a few people live, you know, like 10 or 20,000 people that might be served conveniently by a station near their house. If we plan on locating the stations in places that people conveniently drive by on a regular basis, you could locate a station that is only a couple of minutes detour off of one or two major freeways, and and that could conveniently serve hundreds of thousands, even up to a million people that are passing by that location on a regular basis. For instance, the the intersection of I-5 and I-10 and the 101 near downtown Los Angeles gets a million drivers driving through that freeway interchange on a daily basis. It is risky and misleading to generalize from the fact that people tend to refuel their gasoline cars at one of these ubiquitous stations that is one close to your house in every direction that you might be going from your house. As a geographer, how I could contribute to this grand challenge of reducing petroleum use for transportation and making some other form of transportation competitive, a cleaner form of transportation, is in the area of station location. And in my career, you know, I started out doing mathematical optimization models. Around 2002, 2003, I started developing uh, an optimization model. And, and my approach was based on the simple idea of locating stations along the way. People are driving from A to B and they need a station somewhere along the way. That's what saves them time. That's the most convenient thing. It gets a little more challenging because on a long trip, you can't just have one station along the way. You might need several stations and they might need to be adequately spaced because going back to that energy density issue, the driving range of most alternative fuel vehicles is shorter because to get the same amount of energy in a car, in a battery, or a, a gaseous fuel, you would have to have a much larger tank or a much heavier battery. So the range is shorter. So you have this risk of, of running out of fuel. So, you know, I, I worked on these optimization models to locate stations along the millions of paths that all these different drivers are driving so that the stations are on the way for lots of people and spaced sufficiently for lots of people for lots of trips. As I started promoting this model to be used in the real world, what I was finding was that you know there was some resistance. I mean, some people got it and other people said, no, we should just locate the station near where people live. And that idea, that mentality comes from gasoline refuel. And so I started then getting into survey research and uh, trying to understand driver behavior, understand what people actually do so that our models can reflect real world behavior and we can optimize those locations based on what people really do. When you, you look at gasoline refueling, if you, you talk to an oil company executive and, and they'll say, oh, we, we want to be the first station on your right as you leave home heading to work in the morning or the last station on the right as you're driving home. And, and most of us do rely on a station that's close to our house. When you've got hundreds or thousands of stations in your metropolitan area, no matter where you live and no matter what direction you're going in, you've always got a station fairly close to your house and on the way. 
But now you look at these new networks for alternative fuel vehicles, and there's only about 40 stations for hydrogen in the whole state of California, and that's the only state that has stations. Here in the Phoenix metropolitan area, we have seven or eight compressed natural gas stations for 4 million people. So it's very unlikely that any one person will have a station that's close to home. I wrote this paper called The Opposite of Ubiquitous. Ubiquitous in geography means sort of located everywhere. Location's not a factor because they're so, so plentiful. And so how people change their behavior when you're dealing with this very sparse network of the early fuel stations is a really interesting topic of study because those drivers are often faced with a choice. There may be a station that's kind of close to their house, maybe three, four miles away, but it may be three to four miles in the wrong direction versus a station that's 10, 15 miles away, but it's a short detour off their route. So one of the interesting studies that we did was looking at, at drivers and when faced with that choice, which of these kinds of stations would they use? And, and we studied compressed natural gas drivers, mostly of uh, Honda Civic natural gas vehicles in Southern California. And by a 10 to one margin, drivers had learned to adapt to this sparse refueling infrastructure by choosing the station that was most on their way, but not closest to home rather than the station that's closest to home, but not the most on their way. So I thought that was a really interesting study and helped inform what kind of optimization models we should use. Given your immersion in transportation, can you tell us about any other interesting and innovative new technologies that you think will help us transform the global transportation system to be more sustainable? This is a super exciting time to be in the transportation field. There are so many new technologies out there. And, you know, you compare that to sort of the late 20th century. And for those 50 years, I would say the big transportation innovation was containerization of freight. But otherwise, planes just got bigger and and faster and more energy efficient and trains got double stacked with containers. But, but there weren't revolutionary technologies. And now, all of a sudden, with this marriage of transportation technologies and cell phone apps, smartphone apps, we have all the alternative fuels that are moving out of the research lab into the real world. So you've got hydrogen vehicles in the few places that have started building station networks. So Germany, California, Japan, Korea, you've got the battery electric cars with about a four-year, five-year lead on the fuel cell vehicles. And so they've really gained some acceptance in the marketplace. We're we're just talking about cars there. You've got electric scooters. One, I think that's sort of a a small-scale thing, but it has big potential. They're electric bikes, e-bikes. There's over 100 million of them in use in China. You produce them at scale, they, they wouldn't be that expensive. With the combined pedal power and battery power, you can have, have a pretty decent range, you know, get a lot of people, a lot of people out of cars. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of exciting things out there and so much more change than in, in, in the last 10 years than in the previous. A lot of the issues we've discussed today are at a magnitude that may, it may seem difficult to have for an individual to have impact. Can you tell me what one person can do to make a difference? Uh, Yeah, they can reduce their own greenhouse gas emissions by choosing a a more sustainable car, driving it less, 
carpooling more, flying less. One or two air trips, you know, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, but, you know, one or two air trips will exhaust your entire annual carbon budget for transportation. I haven't really cut down my air travel, but I have started buying carbon offsets, you know, when I do make a trip. But, you know, I do think that that the technology that could reverse this increase in CO2 emissions from transportation is going to be some form of electric vehicle, either a battery electric vehicle or a fuel cell electric vehicle, which, you know, doesn't have a plug, but it has a hydrogen tank and a fuel cell. And then the fuel cell generates electricity and runs an electric motor. So a fuel cell vehicle is also an electric vehicle. Which technology is going to win between battery electric vehicles and fuel cell electric vehicles is still very much an open question. There's a potential for these two to work together, like a plug-in hybrid today, except instead of with a gas tank and an internal combustion engine working together with the battery and the electric motor, like in a plug-in hybrid today, there would be a hydrogen tank and a fuel cell. And this is already being done with, with trucks. This is already being done even with trains, not in the United States, but outside of the United States. So they may actually come together and provide maybe the best of both worlds. Mike, the majority of your work is focused on cars that are powered by sustainable energy sources. Why do you focus on cars instead of other alternate modes of transportation? Working in a combined department of geography and urban planning, you know, I definitely find that most students are interested in biking and walking and denser cities and bus rapid transit and improving transit and the quality of life in cities. And so to a certain extent, I'm flying against that. And so I'll say something a little bit provocative here. But before, before I do, I really want to say I'm a guy who's biked to work my entire life. I have never owned a parking pass. You know, I take the light rail in Phoenix uh, as much as I can when I go downtown. And, you know, I believe very strongly in continuing to support public transportation and non-motorized transportation and more livable, denser urban areas. Now, that being said, Ryan, can you guess what percentage of Americans drive to work? 70? 86%. Wow. 86% of people drive to work on a national basis. Now, take a city like Portland. Portland is often held up by urban planners and geographers as you know, a Western city that wasn't developed in the walking streetcar era of history, but yet has done so many innovative things to try to make a more sustainable city. What percentage of people do you think drive to work? Well, given the statistic that you gave me earlier, I'm going to go with uh, 75%. Still 80%. Wow. Right. So with everything they've done with their bike lanes and their streetcars and, and their light rail and the green belt and so many other fantastic things that they're doing in Portland, that's as low as they've been able to get. You know, I just kind of feel that if we really are serious about climate change and global warming, we need to do something that's going to be widely adopted by the mass of Americans without asking them to change their lifestyle. And we can't overnight change the land use patterns of our cities. This is kind of why I feel that we, we shouldn't stop investing in biking, walking, and public transportation. But we need to do massive investment in 
alternative fuel vehicles because that's really how we're going to make a dent in CO2 emissions from, from the transportation sector in a short amount of time. Right. And, and you know, a lot of your work has been into driver behavior and extends into customer behavior. It seems that accepting that behavior as it is and finding solutions that align with that behavior rather than trying to force people to change how they behave every day is, is a much more effective way to spend resources. Yeah, really. And, and I think if we're not always cognizant of that, we're not going to be successful in developing more sustainable transportation on a large, large scale for the majority of Americans. Well, this is clearly a very exciting time to be in this field. I look forward to future conversations, Mike, and I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Ryan. It's been nice talking to you again. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.